Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host for the day, Leda Glyptus. How's it going, Leda? Other than the rain, pretty good. Yeah, London's bringing the sunshine in the form of you, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a shock to the system coming back from three days in sunny Athens to 10 yeah. degrees and torrential rain. Yeah, if it wasn't for this plan in the diary, I would have turned around and gone back. Well, today we're here to talk about payments, cross-border payments specifically, and of course, good old payment infrastructure and where the innovation's coming from in that space. Absolutely. And um, I am, I'm a well-known fan of the space, but increasingly I'm not alone. Cross-border payments becoming quite a fascinating market at the moment. Uh, real-time domestic payments, 24-7 central bank settlements. We have renewed impetus for transformation in the space. People are really um, talking about it. Also, quite a lot of the challenges are trying to break into this space, and the industry is really reconsidering what is actually possible. We've seen new market entrants, SWIFT itself um, leading with quite interesting transformation, introducing a set of initiatives that could fundamentally change the market over the next decade. Really exciting times. It is. And all of this led to the podcast we put together today to dive into the topic and understand what that next phase of evolution could actually look like. Naturally, we couldn't do that alone. We needed some, some people who really, really like to nerd out about this stuff. And we're joined by some Fantastic guests to do uh, to discuss the payments industry, uh, why some of these uh, challenges exist, and what clients are demanding, uh, and what changes are coming as well. We have Harry Newman, head of banking at Swift. How are you doing, sir? I'm um, fine, thanks. Thanks for joining us. Andy Smith, CTO at ClearBank. How are you doing? Good, thank you. And Nadja Hijazi, global head of liquidity, cash management, digital at HSBC. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Cross-border payments, it's one of those pieces of industry plumbing that the general public has arguably little comprehension of, yet without it, banking and commerce, as we know, just couldn't function. Uh, But it's also been seen as fairly archaic. It can, in some cases, take several days, and in some cases, up to a week, for funds to be credited to a beneficiary's account. For those listeners that are unfamiliar with the topic, we're just going to give a very brief overview of why this matters so much and how it impacts everything. So... I like to think about correspondent banking when, in a retail sense. When I'm trying to send money to a friend in the States, usually I'm doing it through my bank. Um, there are other ways to do it, but I'm trying to do it through my bank. Uh, and then it needs a way of getting to their bank. And so they need a relationship with that bank in some way. And if it was a relationship in the United Kingdom, they might work with a clearing bank, like, for instance, ClearBank, um, <laughs> to connect all of those banks together and or uh, with the central bank. So it's, it's relatively simple clearing when you're in one country. But when you go across border, well, it's a little bit different, isn't it? I mean, Harry, do you want to give me some views on how some of this stuff works? And how do you describe your job when you're at a dinner party to people who, who don't know what it is and what SWIFT does? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so cross-border payments, yeah, they aren't exactly straightforward because money is sterling is in UK, dollars are in the US, and if you want to make a payment cross-border, you've got to somehow get between two jurisdictions and probably two currencies as well. Although you could have dollars in the UK as well, so it actually gets quite complicated. So from a retail perspective, you might see it as simply, I want to make a payment cross-border. But when you actually drill into what has to happen for that, you've got to go across different jurisdictions. You've got to go across different players. You don't have a single currency to deal with. So it does end up with quite a complex set of um, uh, needs around it. And you also have a higher degree of regulatory scrutiny Mm -hmm. uh, coming in terms of whether it's AML or sanctions uh, um, screening and so on. So it is a different... um, 
a different proposition. And I think, Nadia, the a fair point is that it's not just you and me trying to send money abroad. Actually, there's a whole suite of potential clients for this. Can you give me a feel for who the people trying to move money around the world are more commonly as well in, in the corporate space, for instance? Yeah, sure. So we we look to see a whole range of our customers who want to do this because customers at the moment, their businesses are becoming more and more international. Mm-hmm. So we see all the way up from a business banking customer to the largest corporate mm-hmm. um, to sort of what I would call the big non-bank financial institutions like insurance companies and the other that use that. I think the way that we try to do it is we try to mask everything that Harry is talking about for those customers Mm -hmm. and really try to make it a a simple thing. They don't need to know about the underlying infrastructure. All they want to do is make a payment from A to B, Mm -hmm. make sure that the person got the payment and that they don't get overcharged for it. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do now on top of it from a digital perspective is take it from the perspective of the customer and detach ourselves from the complexity of the infrastructure. Well, I think it's fair to say that the customers probably don't care how it works, they care that it works. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I don't really care how Netflix works, I care that the movie comes real time. But that's right, and I think that that's what we want to do. We want to create a Netflix experience with the payment where mm. you're not having to worry about it. And not just thinking about the payment, but thinking about the data, because the customers at the end of the day got to reconcile it. So you really want to make sure that the information flows through in a way that they they can then trace back for their records. And from their perspective, all they really want is a notification to say the payment has been sent and has arrived, and a, and a notification to their supplier that their supplier knows that the payment's been made, because that stops a phone call into them as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's really, when we talk to them, it's really about that whole end-to-end. Um, and so it's much more than the payment, it's everything around it. Oh, but it's such a such a change from where we were even a a few years ago and from a retail customer experience what you're describing is both a dream come true but also increasingly an expectation because they have those seamless digital experiences elsewhere but as we move down the institutional space Mm -hmm. um, knowing how the system worked was a default reality because you were also in that space and and there was a an embedded understanding that this is how it is and a lot of people setting up their businesses with the expectation of those delays and sort of providing services around those delays. Um, From a customer perspective, from a a business perspective, from a commerce perspective, what you're describing is is fantastic. But how is it disrupting the bank's own business? I mean, I think for us, it's actually an improvement. So the stuff that SWIFT is bringing in around GPI is, is, is a huge benefit to both the banks and the customers. Because at the moment, we have huge teams that actually are responsible for servicing these payments that drop out, mm-hmm. the contact centers that are getting the phone calls from the customers that have to deal with it. We're having to train large swathes of our population on how payments work. So when something goes wrong, we're able to help our customers through it. And so for us, this is really a fundamental change in in the ability to really provide that kind of transparency both internally um, and to the customers. The other thing that it's doing is it's kind of changing the way we're thinking about how to do payments as well. Mm. You know, we look at some of the challenges out there and the way that they're doing it and thinking, I think that the the cross-border payments structure around SWIFT is really good, but then there's some really clever pilots going on to see how can we link up real-time payments Mm -hmm. So there was a pilot that was done in Singapore that actually creates even more certainty and removes some of the costs that you get in the correspondent banking chain. Because I think that SWIFT is great in what they've done GPI, but it really does show 
all the break points. So yeah. you can see the correspondent bank is taking £15, the Benny Bank's taking £15, you've just been charged £15. And then they look at it and they go, wow, this is a really expensive instruction. And so for us, we then start to realize that that's not really going to be an acceptable proposition. So do we start to do something like, I think some of the Australian banks are doing something coming out of their conduct investigation where they start to do bilateral agreements with the correspondents to say, mm. let's agree between us that this transaction will only ever cost our customer £10. Wow. So it's really starting to revolutionize the way we think about using real-time payments, the way we think about how we create those connections between that, but really driving it from what does our customer need from us and how does that actually help me remove you know, 40% of my phone calls coming in at the moment are, where is my payment? I can downsize my teams and start to sell value add to my customers rather than managing what happened to a payment. I think that's a great point because uh, corporate treasurers are typically the people we're talking about as your, as your customer, I would imagine. No, the, no. Lower down? I cover all the way All the way down from, to small businesses. I cover all the way from sole proprietors wow. up to um, uh, financial institutions on Wow, my so there's a real mix. And, and, and I guess across all of that spectrum, there's this challenge when I spoke to the corporate treasurer of one of the world's largest tech companies and they were saying they can't believe in, in 2019 like AI can recognize a cat from a dog but they don't know when a payment's going to get to the other side of the world they don't know how much it's going to cost or if it's going to get there and actually that's a really big problem but it's a it's a hard problem for a lot of reasons and I think it's good to see that there is so much uh, enthusiasm and momentum now and it looks like we're really getting close to, to starting to solve that at the infrastructure level I want to bring Andy in here to talk about the the shift we've seen in payment infrastructure more broadly, because I think we we have seen payment infrastructure sort of be not the not the hot conversation for a long time. It, you know, 10, 20 years ago, there was a lot of standards conversation, but the nature of the infrastructure and the technology at the bottom level is starting to, to really change. Yeah, and, and what's really interesting is what Nadia was just talking about there. I think infrastructure is now being driven by application or need or the user experience. As opposed to a while back, we were thinking infrastructure first, and so then how does that solve a problem afterwards? Um, the challenge I think you'll see is, is that infrastructure needs to become real-time everywhere. So we're talking about real-time messaging, real-time movement. You know, if I use WhatsApp, I get the singular tick, then get two ticks, then get the, blue, the, the, the nice blue, so I know it's been delivered. How do I actually see that kind of experience across cross-border payments? And you even can't do that today at all. And actually comes right back down to a fundamental infrastructure problem that, that we see, which is RTGS isn't real-time 24-7. Yeah. It's mm. just not. Yeah. So if we look at the Bank of England, it's shut more than it is open. Mm-hmm. And then when we look actually as swift, right. swift as a network, right? Maybe you, you do realise how quotable that is, right? <laughs> you just, <laughs> made, a, true, you just right? made a tweet, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's a true statement, right? When you take bank holidays, Saturday, Sundays, it works six till six. That's the only time it's open. So, you know, it, it's just not 24 by 7, which means it's not going to be real-time, full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, if we look at that across the globe, I think I think it's actually out of the SWIFT report itself. You guys are, are up 248 days. Essentially, that's how I can send real-time payments, is 248 days no. of availability. No, it's not. But not because of you, but because oh, of I actual RTGS. The receiving yes. systems, yeah. Well, let's come right back to that one. And that's, that's the challenge. No, but that's the point. I do want to come to that directly, Harry, because I think quite unfairly people go, Swift is broken. And actually, I yeah. think that's a very unfair comment given what Swift does. But I think what we have to, I mean, Nadia made this point. I mean, the point about cross-border payments is is a tag team between the underlying infrastructure and then the financial institutions front ends to their clients using that infrastructure yeah. to, and then compete and add value and, and obviously one of the things, what we're doing is driving that underlying infrastructure towards a better 
uh, future that then financial institutions can provide better to their clients. But this point about um, uh, cross-border um, payments and the times they take is really interesting because traditionally people have said, oh, it takes two or three days. And, and the reality was that nobody measured it. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually knew, but you could always find a case where it took two or three days and maybe even a week. Now, probably if it took a week, something was wrong. Mm-hmm. It was a sanctions hit or the account didn't exist and it had to be properly repaired and so on. Uh, but what we now see, because we now have with GPI this complete end-to-end transparency of what is going on, if you like, under the, uh, behind the financial institutions, we now know that 96% are credited to the beneficiary within a day and 50% within 30 minutes. And when you drill into that statement, the, the, not, the, the ones that take longer than 30 minutes, it's generally two or three main reasons. One is foreign exchange controls. Mm-hmm. Country has foreign exchange controls. Don't dream you're going to get a real-time payment in. The median time is going to be more like 16 hours or a day because that country, for its own reasons, no, no comment on that, has a foreign exchange control. Mm-hmm. End of story. It just makes um, things harder. It makes things harder. And another category, indeed, is this, these time zones. You make a payment to Australia, it's shut. Now, as everybody evolves to real-time domestically, that will probably erode. When you strip out those reasons, then you find there's a... There's a there's probably around a few more, a few percent that are actually, you know, stuck for reasons such as the account number doesn't exist or this kind of thing. Or they can't find the BIC code. Or I can't find the BIC or... Mm. Um, I mean, I mean these the, and these are the fundamental can, things. Can we just, for, for the jargon busting, can we, can we break... Sorry, so they can't find the, they can't find the... I mean, one of the big challenges we find is that customers are intimidated by the way that some of these payment screens are structured. Yeah. So they go onto it and it's, you know, just somebody who wants to run their business. It's a small business and they're not used to it. So they go on, they try to create a payment. Um, and the way that the payments are validated at the moment, you have to be pretty clever at creating them. <laughs> the most perfect payments we see are actually from the hackers. You can actually, <laughs> because they know that they have to create the perfect payment for it to go through in that 30 minutes. Wow. So so if you wanted to sort of spot the anomaly in the traffic we get, yeah. that's the way you spot it in that you've got this 100% perfection because the guy who's creating it. <laughs> has got a manual in front of it. It's not a business banking customer who's just like trying to find their way through. I want to send the money to pay for something I bought in Hong Kong that I'm now going to sell into my shop. And I think that is part of the challenge of the payments and that's part of the perception of why it takes so long. And I think why I agree with Andy, I think it's real-time positioning and simplifying the way that a customer can do this is really at the heart of this. And that that comes back to infrastructure because I think when we look at the actual real-time growth settlement, it's not real-time, as I just said, but even if we move to things like faster payments, we all think that's real-time. That's actually not. You know, you've got a promise of that money. So when you start looking at higher values, when you see some of these really innovative companies like TransferWise and Revolut, their model's very, very different, but it still relies on, you know, on a banking infrastructure and a corresponding banking at the end of the day yeah, to get money from the, the market. Everything, it's everything the ultimately point. relies on that. Even credit cards ultimately exactly. settle on but, these but underlying can we, structures. Hmm. But they have then problems because of liquidity, the way they, they operate their particular model, where the banks don't have that problem. But you then you can see that they've solved the, the problem statement for you, Simon, yeah. when you're saying you as an individual much in a much better fashion. But actually, when you go up the scale, so I go from a retail customer who's just moving you know, £100, £200, you know, five grand, Or even for a very small business, maybe yeah. they've solved it. But not for a medium-sized business who uh, is looking to maybe import you know, a significant amount of goods or for their shop or something like that, where there's some risk involved or you know, it's, it's two months of stock or something. But, but then, don't then stop it- there. Go, go further up, right? So we, we know of investors who are you know, doing uh, commercial buyouts. 
you know, you've got to send two billion pounds all of a sudden and it disappears for, for more than 24 hours. Somebody's sweating, right? Yeah. <laughs> they really are because you're waiting to actually complete that trade. That money's gone. It's gone. Who's sitting on the interest? Where's it? Where, where, you know, two billion, that's not a small amount. So you have to kind of look, I think Nadia said it right at the start, your customers you're looking to solve from the, the granular retail yeah. right the way up to, to institutional money. But those we have days, an interesting challenge normal, here. And can I, can I, can well, I pause are. for they a second? Because there's a lot of love for the customer here, which I buy fully. I have never worked in or with a bank that doesn't genuinely want to make life for the customers easier. Um, and we know that this technology is now possible. That doesn't make it immediately available. You have to, to build the infrastructure. You have to swap things out. And that's costly for everyone involved. Yeah. Um, and that cost at a time of compressed margins and a million other initiatives is, is a burden on banks, particularly the sort of tier twos. Um, and to go back to Nadia's earlier point, someone was making a nice chunk of cash at every step of a process that right or wrong was accepted. Now, when we're saving that money for the customer, it means that someone along the chain is not making that money. So not only do they have to invest in that infrastructure through subscription to GPI or the their own corresponding systems or swap outs of their entire infrastructure, but they will be making less money along the way. Now, we all know, and we've all told our mm -hmm. banking overlords at times, that this technology will eventually be cheaper to run. It's better for the customer. You can cross an upsell value, and it will all have a happy ending. But this time right now is hard for the incumbents. No, I completely agree. I think that I really see a changing landscape for the infrastructure, certainly for the banks, where traditionally the model was that you won the game by owning the infrastructure. And actually what we're seeing now, you get these companies like Stripe that actually say, we're not going to worry about the infrastructure. The problem with the infrastructure is I've got to pay for all the SWIFT upgrades. I've got to pay for what mm. the UK is doing in bringing CHAPS, faster payments and BACs together. Those are all multi-million dollar projects that absorb all of the cost out of the bank at a time when the banks are having to reduce their cost margins. Mm. So instead of us spending time within the bank on the proposition, on the customer, we're spending all of our time on these infrastructure upgrades. So you have to start asking yourself, is that now going to be the way to win the game in the banks? Mm -hmm. Or actually, are you, are you going to see a consolidation of that where just a few banks continue to provide the infrastructure for others? Mm -hmm. And then the other, the other organizations, the other banks then, with the advent of APIs and the ability now to have that sort of sub-second, two-second responses, then are able to spend our money on the proposition and on the customer. And I think this is really where we're going to see the model starting to evolve and change because... You're going to spend the next 10 years now putting hundreds of millions doing SWIFT and XML upgrade. Where's the money for the customer? Well, and I think that's an interesting point. You mentioned there might be less um, less platforms and more people providing at, at the customer end. But it's interesting that ClearBank is almost bucking that trend in that it's very much an infrastructure play and, and dedicated. Well, actually, no, I think we confirm it. Yeah, we're sitting there and saying we're not going to compete with our own customers. So we don't have a retail banking proposition. We don't have... A a banking proposition for businesses you know the type partnership that we have the nationwide for business partnership that we have we're just providing underlying infrastructure that's what we do so when you start looking at things like swift we look at fast phones backs chats you know we're, we're sitting there uh, almost like an aggregator saying all those costs and all the hardships and all the, uh, the overheads of being directly connected we're taking all that away from you and mm -hmm. um, we abstract it away you already have iso 2022 with us so don't worry about all that don't worry about the mpa don't worry about what's going on at rtgs um, and just directly connect to us. 
And that's really, I think we're going to see that model a lot more, especially when you look at the states and you look at other jurisdictions. Yeah. And we, I mean, it's quite clear that, I mean, in all honesty, that banks are probably still doing too much themselves. The concept of APIs and cloud-based services, GPI is both API and messaging enabled because we're kind of agnostic about this. Mm. Um, we, don't, we don't mind which way people want to, to use the service, but it's quite clear that the ones who are coming in through APIs and developing new services are, are faster and nimbler than, than, if you like, the more traditional shops. And those that have smart real-time back offices, they, they find adoption straightforward. And the ones that have you know, lots and lots of different legacy have a bit more, you know, have a lot more to do. Which is interesting. And I want to drill into that in a second, but can we step back and just explain GPI for the uninitiated? If you live under a rock... And I thought you, we were miles you, beyond that yeah. topic. We, we, we skated around that one. Yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I think it is probably worth just explaining it. This so, is probably are aware, but it's worth worth restating it. So the, the, the point about GPI is that it is, it may be behind the scenes, but it is about linking up the banks and all of that correspondent banking where you have to make payments cross-border, that is done by messaging between the banks and between their accounts. Um, and the SWIFT exists to provide that backbone infrastructure to do it. And traditionally, we were put in, in a sense, like the post office. You know, don't just, just deliver a message between two banks and to a set of standards so that everybody knows how it's addressed. But that doesn't really cut it in today's world, and it does lead to a lot of um, some of the, the problems that people have seen in terms of waste and, and you know, problem payments and so on. What we do with GPI is we take a very simple approach. We put a tracking service in the cloud above it, which is API and messaging enabled. So this service now knows where every single payment is. We add a confirmation, and the banks agree to work to a certain set of service levels. And all of that comes together to make a, a fundamentally better underlying service that takes out a lot of inquiries, because you now know when a payment is stuck, you now know how long it takes, you get a confirmation that the beneficiary has got it. So all of those things are, are really important. Now, to many viewers, or sorry, readers, listeners, <laughs> what are we? All, all of the above. Do you to many listeners, there? that's... That's a, a, an underlying complication back to an earlier discussion. They don't necessarily need to understand, not unless they're particularly keen on these things, but it is important because it then enables financial institutions to build on it and provide much better services. And I think that point we were making earlier, I think uh, both Nadia and, and uh, Andy made the point, which is that sort of frustration that customers have of not knowing when it's going to get there, that the thing's shut. And, and the point you made, I think, was quite visceral. I'm sending two billion, will it get there? I'm sweating. Uh, to actually know where it is and to know where it is in the process that in itself is a huge benefit just the the certainty of of where this is in the process is yeah huge. so we've we've got a track payments capability that we've already developed on our front end and the feedback from the customers is they love it i think where we're seeing some still some lingering challenges is what leader said is around the tier two banks mm. that aren't yet members of that or you've got exotic currencies so where the banks that have signed up to it and it works, and if you are a customer following that route, mm-hmm. then actually this is a revelation for the bank, but also for the customer, sorry. And for the, but for the, the other thing that it does show, as I said, is it does show the fees. Uh, yes. But it does give them that certainty of, oh, wow, the payment's arrived. Do you really mean it's in the beneficiary bank? They, can, they don't really believe you because they've worked so many uh-huh. years with a broken system. But then if they're sending stuff into the states, into any of the smaller banks into the state, into, into those uh, clearing, mm. then sort of beyond the Bank of America's and Citibank's, you're, you're still in, you're still, the, the curtain is still Absolutely. down. And, I, I, and, and, yes. and on top of that, um, it's, it's the point Harry was making earlier, that you do show up the jurisdictional um, 
peculiarities, shall we say, because if you want to um, send a payment from um, a Middle Eastern country to any other economy, unless you put it in place by close of play Wednesday, you're not going to see the money till Monday mm. because by the time you put it through on Monday, uh, on Thursday morning, probably they've already shut and nothing gets processed. Yeah, you yeah, you want to see a central point. bank that's closed more than it's open, you, some of those jurisdictions. And then it doesn't matter how fast your infrastructure is if you have half the week that is just but, but that was inaccessible my, to you. It, that was my point, right? So we, we, Swift has done some great work around this, and actually, when you when you take the the, the ninety odd percent, you know, example, it looks great. But when you actually get into those the, the weeds of it, and actually the infrastructure that sits there with the smaller banks, how can they actually deliver that sort of level of service? So whilst we're looking at you just said Citibank and the, and the big players, great, that works well. But when you look at a challenger bank, mm-hmm. how do they actually play on an even even playing field? Or so not they a have to go bank, to a community bank or a building society. Yeah, yeah, or a, I mean, we see those already as challenges with FPS and, and banks in the UK. Yeah. Right? So you see people who are agency banked and they have a second rate experience. Mm-hmm. That's, that's because of access and the cost of access into their infrastructure which is why I think we go full circle, which is why Clearbank turned up in the UK to try and get rid of that and get rid of all that friction. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have uh, this conversation quite a lot over the next coming uh, over the coming years because we're going to need to see this in probably in every single jurisdiction. Yeah, Stripe you but really for correspondent works. banking kind of um, feels like something that the, the market's crying out for. And, and what role could GPI play in that? Because it feels like Stripe succeeds because there are a bunch of um, sort of standards out there that they could build on, TCPIP, but there were a- APIs from a lot of the payments gateways. There was a lot of stuff they could build over the top of. I mean, do you see a role for GPI in, in enabling those sorts of things to start to emerge, both inside some of the larger incumbents and uh, and also in, in challenger infrastructure players? So I think, I mean, it's kind of two pieces in there. One is I do see a role for, um, oh, you're talking about tier two banks and so on. I, f- I see more and more a role for banks to focus on their client end and um, outsource through API services, as we were discussing earlier, ways to deal with that. If they can't deal with it themselves because it's a heavy lift, then why are they doing it? That's a very clear industry trend. But it's, a, but it's an interesting piece, and if you don't mind me jumping in. Um, obviously, GPI has... Hmm. It, it's not just what it offers, it's what it's forced people to confront within their organisations, particularly the ones um, that either because of their size or location didn't feel the pressure to do so. Have you had resistance? Um, not, from, not from major players. Local players sometimes, yes. Not resistance exactly, but is this really top of my list? Ah, uh, yes. That, that's more the, the nature of it. And it's, it's not so much that... I mean, everybody, everybody we've spoken to looks at it and says, yeah, absolutely, I want to do this. Um, and then there are players who say, but then I've got to do this, um, this compliance thing, and then I've got to do this regulatory uplift, and I've got to do what I need to do for my domestic infrastructure. And when I look at my IT schedule, that's a problem. That's the classic uh, um, uh, response. So I haven't actually seen anybody say, oh, no, we're going to do that. Um, so that's... But I think, I think the players that you mentioned, like Stripe, I don't think they use the, the, the SWIFT network to do it because there's too much uncertainty, mm-hmm. even with SWIFT GPI. SWIFT GPI is great. It tells you where the payments start, 
that removes a huge amount of time and investigation that you have at the moment, but it's still telling you that payment is stuck. Those type of operators can't survive on a business that has a payment stuck somewhere, so they do tend to drop into the real-time schemes in, in, in the countries where they've got them. I think there's 46 countries now that have got real-time payments roll, rolling out, and even more. So you kind of have this balance of, is your proposition based on 100% certainty or traceability? Mm. And I think that the, the, the new players are saying it needs to be based on 100% certainty, both wow. in terms of the fee and the arrival. And, the, and that's the game they're trying to push. At the top end of the market, the sort of the, the, the type of the... They need to be able to take the data associated with the payments because they're making tens of thousands of payments, in some cases millions, if you're talking about these really, really big companies. And if they don't have the data structured in a way that their own system can match it, so mm -hmm. they can go, yep, it came in, it went out, it, that doesn't work for them. And that's still an area where I think there's still opportunity, a lot of opportunity for the banks and the infrastructure providers to get better at. Yeah. So that, you know, with all the AI coming in, AI is only going to work if it can read the data and the data is structured in a way that it can go, okay, I sent this out. This is exactly the same inf information. I, I read back. a blog post about six months ago called "Crappy Data is Why We Can't Have Nice Things," and actually, that's you exactly it. And, and you can see why that that's the demand in inside of corporates. If if I'm um, managing risk and trying to figure out, well, what is my exposure to that currency movement, exactly. and I don't know where my payments are, and there are, as Andy said, billions riding on the line on a day to day basis, that can make a material difference to the to the quarter, to the year, to to the future of the business and its share price. Exactly. So I don't think we should just think of this as cross-border payments. We should think about it as the data that goes with it and how we make that and, a and lot more ingestible and you know usable. You paint a very powerful image from a from a customer perspective. This is excellent news if you're uh, if you're in commerce. Mm -hmm. um, it's challenging for the banks. We've touched on that from an infrastructure and business perspective. We've heard over the last. 15 years that this transformation of the space will lead to consolidation, probably a change in the landscape. We're not necessarily going to need as many players. This might be a, a, a test of, a, of, of the metal of those different organizations. But surely if it re reduces the noise and it reduces the time and cost of certain things, uh, space opens up to do other things. I know there's a, quite a lot of... Um, an open invitation almost for, for active innovation on top of the GPI platform and some interesting things are already emerging. But if we look at this purely from an opportunity perspective, how are you seeing this space? This has not been the most exciting side of banking, although it has consistently been my favorite. I, I well would second that. Yeah, I love this um, stuff. You're but isn't really it the sad time people in it. We are, I love plumbing. You have no idea. <laughs> how, how, how does it work? <laughs> I want to know. Uh, exactly for but the reasons that Andy mentioned earlier, that I have sat, um, I, I, I grew up in, in inside transaction correspondent banking, right? So I love it because it's what I learned first. But also, because I spent so much of my career seeing a lot of interesting challengers giving us the, well, we're awesome, you're not. And it's like, what do you think process is the amazing stuff you do? It's all running through our pipes. And until we upgrade those pipes, we're all as slow as the weakest link to the point you made, Nadia. So it's going to be challenging for quite a lot of players. I, I don't think we, any of us think it won't, but it opens up the space. Do you expect we'll see awesome things? I'm looking at you because you're, you're, you're doing awesome things. Fintechs and other things. Yeah, yeah, we will do. But I, I think you've got to look at it two different ways. At the moment, we see fintechs coming out, looking at how do I use the current plumbing uh, and change the model up 
or flip it over really on its head. Uh, and if you look at the kind of like how TransferWise and Revolut did that with a kind of like a P2P environment, you know, environment, you know, I place money into basically I pay TransferWise in the UK, they hold it. And then somebody's paid something, the other side, let's say it's in US dollars, and then I pay out uh, and I balance the books that way, which is a way of just basically using the same plumbing that the, that's been there for, forever and a day, but in a slightly innovative fashion. Yeah. It's, a, it's a different model. I think what we need to do is start looking at actually is our plumbing correct? I feel like what we usually do across financial services is we've got some good plumbing and then we layer something over the top of it and then we'll layer something over the top of that and then we'll lay something over the top of that because we don't actually want to go back and revisit that plumbing. Um, you know, in many ways, GPI is a little bit like that because we're still using the correspondent bank network. We're still using the same MT messages at the moment. We're then recording additional messages on top of that. And if, if you're unaware of that, you get charged based on the messages that, that are going. So actually, GPI isn't reducing my costs. It's actually increasing the costs for me as a, as a participant bank. But it, not, not massively if you're a tier one, right? if you're slightly down the, 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 the chain there, your costs go up. But it's just kind of interesting to start looking at and say, actually, with all these experiences, what do I want? Do I really want to just keep overlaying on the same infrastructure or do I innovatively want to sit there and go, the infrastructure is not quite right. Let's look at doing it in a different way. So Swift has already been looking at this, right? You guys are already looking a lot more with the cloud and how do you actually leverage cloud rather than me having Swift Alliance access on-prem yeah. and all that sort of infrastructure sort of pipes work. I think there's a lot of innovation that's going to come out in the next six to 12 months, which is, which is very much cloud-based, mm. cloud-focused, um, and the way that that model will operate will be very, very different. Yeah, and I'm not sure, by the way, I'd agree with the statement that we'll see more and more consolidation. I think in the immediate future, we may not see consolidation because technology allows fragmentation, in fact, encourages it. In due course, there will be more consolidation because ultimately yeah, we're yeah, that's a fair the volume game. But well, it's a fair observation. Years, hmm, We've been sure told to expect consolidation yeah. and I've been expecting it for 15 years and it hasn't come. Whether it comes next or not, uh, it'll be an interesting thing. But as we've highlighted already, the cost structure and profit structure of how banking works in that sort of deeper end will change. And if your business model sustains it, then great. If not, I expect we'll see change, if not. But, but it's a... Consolidation is an interesting one, right? Because if you, if you look at even clearing in the UK, I think in the 60s, there was like 60-odd banks who were directly connected. And then we we're actually consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. You ended up with four the clearing banks, right? And then there's only us that makes it the fifth. Uh, I think we're going to see a similar thing. If you look at cross-border payments and the fintechs, you'll end up with an explosion of these numbers and they gradually consolidate down. But what is that time period and what does that look like? The other challenge is a lot of people still see perceived value in owning certain pipes or plumbing. So I'm, I'm spinning up a new challenger bank. I own my own infrastructure. That must have a value. Therefore, it has a value to, to my investors. That's not necessarily the right mindset. And until you get over that, I think you will see not so much consolidation, but fragmentation and then consolidation. In, in it's the difference five, between owning time. a technology stack and, and having a business. Like a business is something that has customers and generates revenue and has a future and has growth potential, whereas the technology is neither here nor there. If your customers don't want to use it, the profits don't. And that's a weird one for banks, right? Because yeah. actually banks are sitting there as technology players, a lot of them. Yeah. But did I need to do all that tech? So actually when I work out that most of my revenues come from my NIM. Yeah, yeah. It's, but, it, but it's also where is the value in what we're doing? So now I don't see the value in being in that technology stack and in the messaging between them. I think the value in, in international payments is already moving into, in our case, the tracker because of all the intelligence around payments and what's going on. Um, and then that's what actually people are starting to use to provide more service to their clients, not least because you can now track, you can track out, you can track in. 
So people start to look at incoming payments and know what it, what is going to hit them in so terms of liquidity and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's a fair point. It's a rich service ra- rather than the bare transmission, which is where the value is going to be. So kudos to Swift for taking a, 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 a challenging moment and, and essentially staying in the same space but generating new value for the community. And it was not necessarily obvious how that was going to work um, at some point in time. And I think GPI definitely solves that, continues providing value to that to that community in a way that moves with the times. Are you seeing, particularly with the, the heavy numbers of participating banks now in, in, in GPI um, and, and in your spaces, are you seeing banks moving with the time and how they define the value they add to their customers? Obviously, Swift has done it. The, it you've redefined where you believe the community will get value from you. Um, we've been touching on the fact that the world is changing, and it's not just changing in terms of the stack. It's changing in terms of what clients expect and what good looks like from an economic perspective, from a delivery perspective. Are you seeing that? Yeah, I, th- I think that I think it's going to be a slow change because GPI has only been out for a certain amount of time. Not all the banks had enabled all the currencies. We'd enabled all of the currencies. We were... But a lot of the banks just were doing it selectively. But I, I do really think that it is going to start to change the paradigm because once people get into the fact that they can actually go in and see where the payment is, they can work out exactly what the charges are, they can see that the amount is debited so they're not having to hold it, I do think it's going to drive new propositions around liquidity, provision, and the ability to offer them more services because of the certainty that, that you're providing. Do I think it's going to be quick? I, you know, I, don't, I think it will evolve over time. People need to build up trust in, in, in what's out there. This deal sets apart a brighter future. We will leave the EU. Uh, clearly the pressure is beginning. British jobs under the rules of the European Union. Brexit. The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com. Today, customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. I think a lot of banks have got bigger problems at the moment. So when you, you talked about real-time and, and APIs and, and things like that, most of the banks still don't really deliver a, a top-notch customer experience. Um, hence, we have lots of challenges here in the UK who are, who are taking advantage of that. Yeah, um, I but think I think 
I think if your core stack's not up, up to snuff, it doesn't matter what Swift is doing, really. When you go up that stack, how do I actually deliver that back well, up? And how do you compete at the cost-income ratio of some of those challenges, especially if those challenges aren't trying to run all of their own stack? And I think that's a different place to be because I think the cost-income ratio game is changing. Uh, when your income was a lot higher, the cost you could maintain was was a lot higher too. But actually, if, if fees are dip, disappearing, net interest margins left. But and if you're really good at being a balance sheet lender, you're probably still in a, in a pretty good place. But the cost year on year it seems to me like the banks spend capex and increase opex as a result, rather than uh, spend. It's some income, but it's not all. Um, you know, opex is 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 gradually being attacked, but technology spend is increasing year on year. And actually, shouldn't the capex be reducing? that OPEX over time and, and and how do you start to see that in terms of the internal infrastructure inside a lot of these organisations and that's a big challenge for people in, in IT with inside banks right you mm-hmm. look and go well how oh, much money this am- isn't new to them no 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 how much money am I spending on keeping the lights on and how much money yeah. am I willing to do something new with or yeah. can actually have I got the budget to do anything new with and, and will it be effective when I do it and I think that's the thing because a lot of the it, nobody wants to do innovation theatre and I think where oh no mm. I think quite a lot of people want to do innovation well, theatre the, Yeah, okay. But that's the press release that you spend a tiny bit of budget on. But the serious budget is is the stuff that's going to be transformative for customers. Yeah, I agree. I think that the serious budget is going on the stuff that's transformative. I think that what the fintechs are doing is really good and interesting because it helps to push everybody out of their paradigm. But I think even them, as they grow further, at the moment, the regulators don't really look at them when they're a certain size. Mm -hmm. The minute they start to reach a, a, a bigger size, then the same kind of regulatory scrutiny that the banks have starts to hit them and we've seen a number of them in the press Mm -hmm. around that and to me that's the interesting dynamic yes you can build a service on it and they kind of turn a blind eye for a certain time because that's part of the promoting fintech in the country Mm -hmm. the minute it gets big enough for the department of justice to be breathing down your neck the whole paradigm kind of changes i think in terms of the technical teams in the bank they are very interested in pushing innovation forward just as much as the business teams and you have a a whole new generation of technologists in organizations that are coming from that background who are really coming up with some really clever ideas we've got our teams in china in particular in india where you have this generation coming up there that are actually thinking even differently to the way in the uk uh, because they have a different paradigm in the way you do it. So they're coming from the background of Pingan, mm. Alibaba, and they're bringing that to the table for all the banks that have offshored into that from their technology. And so suddenly they're actually shaping our technology in a different way using kind of what they're seeing in their own countries. Which goes to your point about, uh, you know, Pingan and Alibaba are the masters of using data in a marketplace exactly. to completely change the lending model. So really, really powerful. I think um, as we shift from where the market is to to kind of what it's looking out at, Harry, I want to ask you about the um, R3 quarter proof of concept, because this is kind of moving from GPI to something that's DLT based. And DLT has had a good and bad rep. It's it's kind of been the the PR thing for a little while. Was I can't believe you held this back for like three quarters of an hour. I'm really impressed with your self restraint. So am I actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think you've got to be realistic about where DLT is in, in, in an organization's priority stack. But which makes me beg the question for a very serious, sober organization like Swift um, that does interesting things uh, around the edges with inner tribe consistently. But um, this was this was quite public and. and and quite uh, open in, in what you did. So what was, the, what was the driver behind it? Well, the driver 
DLT, we looked actually with GPI, we looked at DLT and should we use DLT? And we said, hmm, still in the lab. Yep. Uh, clouds, APIs, these are you know, industry ready. We can roll, use these and, and make a big difference with those. So we went with those. And meanwhile, we keep, uh, we keep looking at DLT and how we might use it. Now, so far, we haven't seen a direct application in payments. Some other fields where you can actually put the asset on the blockchain, yeah, that, that we can see makes sense. Yeah. But on payments, it gets tricky. But in GPI, what you have is a payments platform. It's API enabled. And then you have, we discover a whole load of platforms looking for what they're calling off-ledger settlements. Yes. Well, uh, to me, as a payments guide, that's a payment. So the natural, the natural thing to do is to actually link the two via API calls that says so the, the platform, whatever it's doing, that has a, has a need to get a payment made can make an API call into the GPI environment with the necessary um, uh, bank involvement and so on in terms of actually making that payment. And then when the confirmation is made, the, the blockchain gets its confirmation back that the settlement has been made and, and the, you know, the goods can shift. So that's a symbiotic um, setup. Now, you can try and put the money on the um, platform um, but so far, that has not proved uh, particularly successful uh, because you well, need unless a central bank got behind it and issued currency directly on it, yeah, which you, doesn't you, seem realistic. You need a stable cryptocurrency you can actually use, and most of them go up and down like a yo-yo and are more or less useless as a but medium of exchange. I, I, I love DLT from, for, as Simon knows, right, oh, yeah. for certain use cases. When I look at uh, payments and the way that you actually use money economically. It doesn't really, it doesn't, no. it hasn't got a natural sit. I agree. And it's sometimes we have technology for technology's sake, right? So I Completely. remember an old mentor of mine who said the cloud is nothing new. It is mm. literally nothing new. It's just the way that you've executed it. Um, when you look at DLT, what am I actually trying to achieve in payments? I'm trying to give you notice at both ends of the transaction that it's all happening and using DLT to actually move. But with cloud and distributed computing in any case, I kind of get that. I, I get it already. I get it for free, right? And I actually get it in a, in a technology that is highly resilient, highly available, and has people like Microsoft investing billions a quarter into something like the Azure network. I kind of get that, right? I've got something like Cosmos DB that is doing that globally for me and global access, and I can have jurisdiction oversight of where that data is at rest. I get it. It's already there. It's so to actually start looking at it. I think that's a powerful point. So consider when I became Barclays head of blockchain R&D, I had worked in cash management for a couple of years prior, and the first observation was this, this doesn't work for payments. But this works really well for complex workflows across five, six, seven organizations where we have to enforce the same thing happening in those organizations and, and kind of manage that step-by-step pro, step step process across different systems, across different jurisdictions. And when things start to get really... When I need to know what I see is the same as what you see, um, where there's no central authoritative domain, unlike in the Swift example, where there is clearly an authoritative domain. We're, we're listening to the Swift message. But with some types of transactions, that's not always the case. Trade finance is one that's often brought up. Mm. And, and it's actually when you're in those sorts of the things that happen before the payment then it's, it makes sense that you would drop into to Swift afterwards. Um, but it, before that, there's a lot of things we can hope to solve. Um, all right, DLT aside, where does this uh, cross-border payments industry go next? We've, no, we've notions now of instant, accessible, and ubiquitous, but like, what's actually going to happen? We talked about some of the smaller banks struggling with this around the world. Do, are we going to solve that? Is this, is this inevitable, or are there some real meaty challenges in front of us that we've got to deal with, and what are they? So I think it'll go, it'll go more real-time. And we're already seeing GPI integrating with domestic real-time infrastructures. We've tried to run trials in Singapore and uh, Australia. It'll go uh, progressively easier 
because as more and more vendors come with services that are available through APIs to enable uh, tier two banks to, to use it, we know, we know that. Um, and it'll be more and more driven around the information rather than the, the, the payment flow itself. Yeah. It'll be, can I, I know your liquidity is coming, um, therefore I'm going to make better credit decisions about you. Can I lend you money and so on? All of these decisions will be in there, both in sending and receiving side, from my perspective. Now from the front end, the, the financial institutions, that's a... No, I completely agree. I think it is going to move to that. I think customer expectation is going to change fundamentally, um, driven by both the fintechs, the real-time environment, both in, both from the all the way from the business banking. I think up to the corporates will have much higher expectations around it. I think it is going to force some of the breaks in the chain to kind of up their game, frankly. I think we're going to have to see that, you know, something's stuck in a repair queue at your intermediary bank. That intermediary bank, if it's still going to get business from, from, from the originating bank, is going to have to have pretty quick turnarounds on some of those items. So I think it, it definitely is going to shape up the way that the scrutiny and the focus and the way that you select your partners in this in, in the chain. And I think the customer expectation is definitely going to move to that kind of fintech experience of I want I don't not only I want to know, but I want my supplier to know. And, and the top end, I want the data to be able to automate and be used in my AI machines and whatever to to drive some great outcomes. Do you think this um, sea change you're describing will start putting reverse pressure on the regulatory regions where this sort of thing isn't top of mind priority because I I buy the picture mm. you both paint 100% but what it will create is a very uneven global landscape uh, where the technology is available the expectation is is there the art of the possible is known but certain places can't play the same way because of restrictions that have nothing to do with 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 the banks. So I, I agree. I mean, I think that you've got several things happening, right? You've got quite a drive for nationalisms in certain countries, which which automatically closes them off a little bit from this. You've got the countries with kind of exchange control regulations. You've got the countries that have got huge numbers of these tier two banks, and they're kind of all outside of the scope of this. And to me, then you come back into the model of how do you join that up using their internal rails in the company. Um, and so you're going to have to be quite creative. I don't think they're out of scope. I think it's just we're going to have to figure out different ways to communicate with them um, through, through, through the new rails into their existing rails. Yeah, I, I think we're going to see a lot more fintechs take advantage of this space. I really do. And they're going to come up with new models and new models will probably drive new infrastructure. Um, whether or not that will have Swift in there uh, underneath, I don't know, right? I just if, if I could look in my crystal ball, I wouldn't tell you in any case. <laughs> <laughs> you keep saying that, you tease. Yeah, no, what's with all this no, foreshadowing? No, 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 not, not saying anything. It's foreshadowing uh, yeah. before Cyborg, there, there is, Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of new things, I think, that are going on around this space. Um, everything is, at the end of the day, I think if you actually look back at what is the end experience and what is the outcome you want to get, The outcome is I want to be able to pay someone from the UK to Australia or New Zealand instantly. And they see that money. And I want it to happen 24-7 by 365. I don't care if RTGS is open. I don't care what is going on globally. I don't care about the value date. I don't care about the infrastructure underneath. That's actually the user experience. If that's the user experience that's going to drive up the value chain, so from retail to, to businesses up to, you know, multi-billion, billion-pound contracts, then it's going to happen. It's just a case of when and what does that actually look like. Somebody uh, and who's going to do it. And, yeah. I, and I guess I have a, a question that's more for Nadia, but um, everyone, but more specifically f- for Nadia. In this changing world where the, um, the, 
the fintechs will come up with alternative models and not all of them will work, but they, they push the boat out no matter what happens. Um, we've already touched on the fact that this technology means that we can actually downsize teams. Uh, and although that's devastating for the humans that are being downsized, that, that agility that you acquire is better for the clients, better for the organization. So you, you are definitely going to use fewer humans to run the business. Uh, but we've also touched on the fact that fundamentally we're going to use different humans as well. The skill sets required, mm. technology aside, um, will be different. So in recognition of what Andy has just described, how are you looking at the human factor? of the people that have to sit around and imagine profitability for the future inside the bank? So I think we're trying to, I think from our perspective, everybody really likes change and wants to change. A lot of the teams that we've got in are seeing what's going into the market and are actually really excited about it. So we've got teams in different places kind of reimagining what the future could look like. And we're trying to pull in cross-disciplinary, cross-functional teams and really try to structure ourselves just as if we were a fintech in the way that we think about things, bringing in those different things. I think one of the advantages we also have at HSBC, I said, because we're so global and we're so multicultural, one of the things that we can also do is we can bring in, as I said, the teams from Hong Kong, the mm -hmm. teams from China, even the teams from the US. In Latin America as well, there's some interesting things going on to really kind of help us shape the paradigm. So we're not just looking at it from a UK fintech perspective. We're really looking at it from all those different perspectives. And people find that really exciting because you're kind of like going, well, this is the this is this is the team that's going to keep working with with the with the with the existing but this is the team that's going to reimagine and rethink and really drive us to the future you said something interesting earlier about the generational shift of the people inside your organization as well like is there something in in the the where people are at in their careers and opportunities for different people who are already there to to grow into this new world yeah no definitely i think what we're trying to do is is basically if you we're not creating a new team on this. We want to use the existing people. Mm -hmm. Because what you find is you create a team that's off on the side. Mm -hmm. The people that are back, when they come to bring the idea back, there's resistance. Yes. So what we're really saying to people is, do you want to be part of the future? And that's really compelling to people because you know you get full generational people putting their hand up and going, I really want to be part of the future. Um, it's and a beautiful way of putting it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and that really inspires people to say, look, let's, let's, just, let's just get in there and say that we're doing some stuff good, but there's so many different ways can we go. Let, let, let's do that. And I think that's a lot of what we're trying to do with our, with our people at the I, moment. I, I like actually throwing people in who have nothing to do with it. So the challenge sometimes is that you get some great people internally, and we even see this at Clearbank, right? And they understand the, the, in such a low-level detail that it's unbelievable of how money moves. But the problem is they, they get it 100%. If you then want to reimagine something, it's very hard for them to actually go around and, and reimagine that because yeah. they've had 20 years or however many years ingrained into the mindset of how this could work or how it should work. So what I quite like to do is throw people in who have literally have nothing to do with payments. They just don't get it. They don't understand it. And they mm. come at it a completely different way. And is there a way that the ideas that get spawned from there, can you actually iterate through those and see actually that could actually be implemented? Our good friend Dave Birch does something really interesting. It is, is on conferences where he will bring uh, art students in to reimagine something. And actually sometimes those exercises are really powerful. And there is an interesting cognitive bias that um, I think it was a study by MIT that shows uh, the younger you are, the more you value new experience, but actually you're more likely to be wrong because you're always looking for the new experience. The older you are, the more you value experience, which 
you're resting on and you've learned and and it and it's been acquired for a reason but it becomes harder to accept a new concept that might be different to that so the balance seems to be the, the absolutely crucial thing and it's really hard to find people who can reimagine stuff even though they know it inside and out there's there's very 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 few people mm-hmm. in financial services and if you look at the history of fintech who's been successful there's probably only a handful of people who've done it more than once and it's and one yeah. of them's our founder right so when we look at that we see he sets up the first e-commerce website mm-hmm. <laughs> ever, sets up WorldPay, sets up voice commerce, sets up ClearBank. You know, it's a consistent thing. But but Nick's interesting because he doesn't know all the detail about things. He knows enough detail to then step outside and just go, I, I want to do something completely different mm-hmm. and finds he gets dragged back in by people around him. Uh-huh. The right humans around all right, well, listen, we're, we're close up on time. I just want to uh, go around the, the table and sort of ask for uh, final thoughts. I'm going to start with yourself, Lida. Uh, what, what are your reflections from this conversation? Uh, this is this is the sort of stuff I love, you know that. And and for me, the, the most interesting uh, piece is that f- for such a long time, the the innovative snazzy user-centric work has been at arm's length from the infrastructure that supports it. And that was never sustainable, both from an understanding perspective, a value delivery perspective, but also an execution perspective. And I think this is gone now. We we just don't have the option for that to be the case anymore. Um, it's, It's a transformation of the conversation, which is timely and I think it will force quite a lot of the fintechs to rethink their business model. It, and it forces the incumbents to, um, to do things differently. But actually, it gives an even opportunity across the board to say, well, now that we're talking about the real stuff and we understand the end-to-end, what could we really do for our customers? It's a really exciting time. How about yourself, Andy? Yeah, I think financial services is going through a bit of a journey right? in the last five years. We, we've gone from being very much standards-focused into things like APIs and a lot of conversations about what does that mean, what, what does that look like, into our technology stacks, into customer experiences, real-time. Is We, we always talk about real-time. Um, and I think if we, we look at what's happened in the, in the last five years, we've kind of got a number of fintechs and change across the incumbents, and it's kind of happening. You see tick, tick, tick. Yeah, we've got mobile banking. We've now got real-time experiences. We've got this, we've got that. And cross-border payments is probably the next one on the list to actually really get nailed. And GPI has started that trend. Um, other, other fintechs like TransferWise and Revolut, as I said, they've already kind of got their foot very, yeah, very different, <laughs> very different perspectives on it. But I think this is the next big area, to be honest with you. Interesting stuff. And change is coming. Yeah, so I completely agree with Lida. I think that what's changed for me is like, traditionally it used to be the bank's role was to get a payment from A to B using a reliable infrastructure to get it from A to B. But now that's that's not the new paradigm. The new paradigm is what is the best experience that you can create in doing that. And I think that's the big game changer now because you're no longer surviving on the payment has arrived, if you're lucky, within 30 minutes or an hour or a day. It is the new experience that you create around it and the value add that, you've co- that you have to provide. Powerful. Harry, last words. And yeah, I think I mean, GPI has done a lot, but I wouldn't wish to claim it was a finished, uh, mm. finished article. Uh, I actually think by the end of this, we will have um, essentially cross-border payments that, that to the end client look and feel and uh, experience like domestic payments. Um, and the winners in all this will be the, the end clients, whether they be retail or corporate, whoever is actually making the payments. They're the real winners in all this. It's good. Yeah. All Well, that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Harry, if people want to find out more about you, Swift, Cybos, all that kind of good stuff, where do they go? They can go and visit swift.com. Yeah. And there's even an app, Swift GPI. <laughs> well, how about that? How about yourself, Nadi? Um, LinkedIn. Brilliant. Thank you. Andy? Uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. Wow. And your good self, Leader? LinkedIn or Twitter, at Leader Glyptus. 
Uh, you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter. Thank you for listening. If you want to join the discussion, you can find us on social media at Fintech Insiders on Twitter. Or of course, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, YouTube, you name it. We've, we've developed omnipresence. Um, we'd love to hear your thoughts on everything we've just discussed, especially since Cybos is coming to London soon. Uh, as usual, don't forget to subscribe so you never, ever miss an episode. And if you really love us, please do leave us a review. That's all for this week. Goodbye. Goodbye.